Hello, and welcome to this Speedlisten installment of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. I'm Richard Prosh. While my saddle pard, Paul Bishop, and I ride the trail together for our longer episodes, Speedlistens are occasional short podcast installments wherein we ride solo. Today, I'll be thundering over a pulpy four-color landscape, tracking down vintage Western comic books of the 1950s. If you were an all-American kid in the winter of 1951, you might be forgiven for not recognizing the sea change going on in the comic book industry until, like a vast wave from the eastern seaboard, it swept you up and carried you west. The deluge hit when the 58th issue of All-Star Comics, dated April-May, washed into the newsstands. Unlike its immediate winter predecessor, the fantasy-dressed characters of the Justice Society of America were nowhere to be seen in its pages. After 57 issues, the superheroes of National's Golden Age had been unceremoniously put out to pasture, and the landmark comic book now had a new remuda of stars, including a duded-up cowpoke version the JSA hero Johnny Thunder. It all appeared under the masthead All-Star Western, a title that would ride herd over the company's output for a full decade until 1961. While not as creative as his magic-based 40s counterpart, Johnny Thunder wasn't a bad character, and All-Star Western introduced a fine bunch of features, including the Trigger Twins, Roving Ranger, Strongbow, and Don Caballero. In truth, the golden age of comic book superheroes was over, and the men and women coming back from the war were bringing up a new generation of young wranglers who wanted to kick about the ranch with cowboys and Indians. The early 1950s were a heyday for Western comics. And like the TV shows they predated and eventually complemented, there were more titles than anybody could hope to rope with a single lariat or pocket full of shiny dimes. The Stampede had been raising dust on the horizon since the late 40s. One of National's most memorable characters was the long-running Tomahawk, who debuted in Star-Spangled Comics issue 69, June 1947. In September of 1950, he was given his own title, and it outlasted most of its trail pards, trekking 140 issues through the newsstand wilderness until June 1972. Tom Hawk was originally a soldier who served under George Washington in the French and Indian War before donning his familiar fringed buckskin and coonskin cap. Tom got his nickname due to the resemblance between his birth name and the trademark weapon of the Iroquois Confederacy Warriors. As a kid, I wasn't much interested in Tomahawk and his sidekick, Dan Hunter. First of all, his adventures were set in the wilderness east of my Nebraska home. Second of all, they took place more than 100 years before my other Western heroes. At any rate, I didn't have access to many of the stories. But then in 1976, I became an inadvertent fan when my mom bought me a copy of Superman Salutes the Bicentennial. The title was misleading. Other than appearing in a brief framing sequence, Superman didn't have anything to do with the big limited collector's edition comic that reprinted Tomahawk stories from Star Spangled Comics, More Fun Comics, and Tomahawk's own title. Each story was a revelation, and Tomahawk became my favorite do-gooder in DC's posse of historic heroes. Meanwhile, riding into the foray in a big way was Atlas, Martin Goodman's successor to the Golden Age Timely comics and immediate predecessor to the Marvel comics we're familiar with today. It was Timely, after all, who presented Western fans with their first comic book hero, The Masked Raider, beginning in 1939 with Marvel Comics No. 1. The Masked Raider was Jim Gardley, who, with his horse Lightning, dedicated his life to fighting the lawless and bringing justice to the oppressed. While his charge across the early frontier was short, lasting only 12 issues and ending in 1940, his legend lived on to inspire publisher Goodman in the 50s. When Simon and Kirby's last issue of Captain America Comics was released, cover dated February 1950, Goodman rolled out an abundance of romance, war, humor strips, and westerns. 
it would be the Western characters who would arguably best stand the test of time. Like National DC with All-Star Comics, Timely's popular superhero anthology comic All Winners swung into the saddle and got a new moniker after the first issue of its second volume. From issue number 2 to 77, all Western winners pounded the plains under various titles, including Western Winners, Black Rider, Western Tales of the Black Rider, and finally in 1955, Gunsmoke Western, starring Kid Colt. While the kid's book was no kin whatsoever to the popular radio and TV show of the era, I'm sure the Gunsmoke banner didn't hurt sales at the corner drugstore. Kid Colt has his own title as well. Kid Colt Outlaw debuted from Atlas in 1948 and ran through 1979, although it was mostly reprints after 1967. Thousands of ink-soaked pages made the kid into the longest-running Western character in comic book history. 31 years is a long time to be on the prod for crimes you didn't commit, and originally the kid's cover logo was subtitled Hero of the West, but it was changed by issue 3 to read Outlaw. His origin was told in Kid Colt 11, September 1950. The kid's real name is Blaine Colt, a cowboy wrongly accused of murder after avenging his father in a fair gunfight. Though he was a fugitive from the law, he always endeavored to restore his reputation through heroic deeds. Pete Tumlinson was the primary artist on Kid Colt Outlaw, but by issue 25, artist Jack Keller began his long association with the character. Comics writer Tony Isabella wrote that Keller drew more Kid Colt stories than any other artist and may hold the record for drawing the most stories of any Marvel character. Eventually, Marvel editor Stan Lee would take over writing chores on the title. Publisher Goodman had a serious penchant for kid titles. The Outlaw was soon joined by Two-Gun Kid and eventually Arizona Kid and the Apache Kid, among lesser-known names in the 1950s. Neck and neck with Kid Colt for longevity, the Rawhide Kid enjoyed a meandering trail well beyond the 50s. He debuted in a bland 16-issue series that began in 1955. Among a million ropers and rustlers, at first Rawhide couldn't land the kid's dimes and was let go in 1957. Revived in the 60s and 70s, and even spending time with the Avengers through a series of time travel stories, Rawhide would make a boisterous comeback. The covers of his initial comic book series in the 50s were produced by highly acclaimed artists Joe Manley, John Severin, and also Russ Heath. Interior art would be by Bob Brown and Dick Ayers. It's important to note that while National and Atlas might have been the big landowners of their day, there were an abundance of pulp pushers besides the big two forging their brands in the Western genre. In the 1950s, EC Comics published Two-Fisted Tales from issue number 18, December 1950, taking its numbering from The Haunt of Fear, to number 41, March 1955, under the direction of Harvey Kurtzman and eventually John Severin. Perhaps more historically accurate than any comic on the market, and sporting some of the best art this side of a Wild West sideshow poster, Kurtzman's Two-Fisted Tales was a war comic with an anti-war message. Old West cavalry tales and simple pioneer dramas were often drawn by Severin. Issue number 35 is a 1953 all-Civil War treat, with art by Davis, Severin, and Wally Wood. Equally stunning from Harvey Comics was Boy's Ranch, let out of the chute in 1950 and worked up by the studio of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Kirby, of course, would go on to become world famous for giving birth to the Marvel Universe a decade later with Stan Lee, Steve Ditko, and others. Similar to Simon and Kirby's earlier boy gang titles, Boy Commandos and the Newsboy Legion, the kid cowboys of Boy's Ranch featured a rough-and-tumble group of misfits with names like Wee Willie Wee Hawken, Wabash, and Angel under the adult guidance of Clay Duncan and the beautiful gal Palomino. They lived the life every city-bound kid could only dream of, tracking rustlers, 
tackling owl hoots and road agents, squaring off against sinister gun merchants, and wrestling rough and tumble Indian tribes. Innovative compositions and dynamic art were trademarks of the Simon and Kirby house style, and additional art was supplied by Mort Meskin and Charles Nicholas. Reprints of the six-issue series are slightly more difficult to find than some, but the pages reprinted in Titan Books' The Best of Simon and Kirby are a true delight. One particular double-page spread labeled Social Night in Town features a barroom brawl as only Kirby could depict it. Here are more than two dozen individuals leaping, plummeting, punching, being punched, playing piano, lifting bottles, hiding behind the counter. Here's a chair flying through the air. There's a knife stuck in a pillar. A dance hall girl stands on the bar. A rowdy drunk perches on the top of the piano. An unspilled mug of beer teetering nearby. And underneath Kirby's rowdy choreography, a caption. Choose your partner, friend, or foe. Whoop it up, and away you go. Skirmish scenes like that were common for Western comics, but in the early 50s, tussles were breaking out in the comic book industry itself, threatening to blow everything sky high. A backlash against comics led by the psycho-psychiatrist Frederick Wertham and fueled by contentious televised debates on juvenile delinquency forced many publishing houses to close and eventually led to the Comics Code Authority, an industry-wide self-policing entity. More on that in a minute. During the shakeup, Simon and Kirby briefly ramrodded their own outfit called Mainline Comics. It was under the Mainline banner in August 1954 that Bullseye entered the scene. My late friend Don Markstein serves up the origin story. On the day he was born, the boy who was to become Bullseye became one of the few survivors of a raid on the frontier town of Dead Center. His grandfather, an old army scout called Deadeye Dick, carried him to safety by clutching the baby to his chest and galloping right through the surprised Indians. He returned later, finding only a ghost town where Dead Center had been. He stayed there to raise the boy, whom he called Bullseye, for his uncanny ability to shoot and ride. Years later, Dick left Bullseye asleep as he sought revenge against Yellowsnake, the renegade chief who had conducted the raid. He was gunned down for his trouble, leaving Bullseye to seek revenge on his own. Bullseye and Yellowsnake fired simultaneously, but Bullseye's bullet went right up the barrel of Yellowsnake's rifle, causing it to explode in the Indian's face. Yellowsnake was about to kill the boy, but his warriors, taking this as a sign from the Great Spirit, stopped him. Instead, they tied Bullseye down and branded a target on his chest so Yellowsnake would recognize him when the boy grew old enough for him to drive a spear through its center. You know, you might think that if you had a target tattooed on your chest, you'd simply wear a shirt over top of it, but not so if you're determined to be a well-known masked hero. Pushing his brand decades ahead of time, Bullseye sported a brown buckskin top open from collar to belt line. Brown trousers, a red mask, and a green hat topped by a red and yellow Indian feather finished the effect. Just like the surreal Boys Ranch landscape, the West inhabited by Bullseye had almost nothing to do with real American history. Comics historian Mark Evanier shares a quote. We weren't doing real cowboys, Jack explained once. Not the way they really were anyway. No one wanted to see that or read that. I had a book in my library of Old West history, absolutely authentic. It could tell you the exact date Wyatt Earp got bar mitzvahed or whatever you needed to know. I never opened it. Well, I opened it to look at the pictures, but I never read it. Mainline was shuttered less than a year after its birthing, and Bullseye moved to Charlton Comics for issues number 6 and 7, and then galloped off into the dust. Issue number 8, October 1955, was retitled Cody of the Pony Express, and the new star was Buffalo Bill. Simon and Kirby cantered on to blaze different trails. Another early 50s Western outlet, Fawcett Publications, had success with their comics based on motion picture cowboys, like Hopalong Cassidy, Ken Maynard, and Lash LaRue. 
Sadly, the 40s juggernaut couldn't survive the double wallop of a cultural pushback against comics and the legal bullet aimed at their cash cow Captain Marvel. In 1953, Fawcett gave in to DC Comics and folded, also selling off its Western comics to Charlton. Spurred on, Charlton continued to soldier along, as did DC and Atlas, but sales soon became as elusive as a Texas alligator. With the comics code firmly in effect, and television vying for the attention of young and old alike, TV westerns were the rage of the day. And in those days, nobody came close to publishing the number or variety of licensed TV and movie tie-ins that Dell Comics produced. After the shootout with Wertham's book Seduction of the Innocent and the parental fallout that followed, the Comics Code was put together in 1954. Dell refused to join the industry-wide rat squad and instead began publishing in its comics a pledge to parents that promised their editorial process eliminated rather than regulated objectionable material. The books concluded with the now classic credo, Dell Comics are good comics. In this period, Dell even burnished up its image by taking out full-page ads in the Saturday Evening Post that emphasized the wholesomeness of its comic books. There was Buck Jones, Bat Masterson, Cheyenne, Colt 45, Have Gun Will Travel, The Rifleman, Wyatt Earp, and various adaptations of Western novels and movies in Dell's four-color comics line. The Cisco Kid, Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, and The Lone Ranger. Even the heroic steeds of our heroes were stars at Dell Comics, with Trigger, Silver, and Champion each helming their own titles. As you'd expect, The Lone Ranger was an instant hit. Like Dell's Red Rider comic, the first issues of Lone Ranger were reprints of the newspaper comic strip, edited to fit a comic book page format. New material followed with gorgeous painted covers. And when the television show took off, photo covers featuring Clayton Moore were the order of the day. So too was a new paradigm of educational comics. More than a few stories in The Lone Ranger were built around a central topic, and action gave way more or less to the main player's pedantic dialogue. One example is issue number 125, the six-gun issue, an interesting look at a variety of firearms via some loose story frames. While Tom Gill turned in solid art, writer Paul S. Newman doesn't get his usual credit for these tales, and I'm not surprised. The stories read as if produced by the editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and one can only speculate on any one individual's contribution. The first entry, The Gunfight, is about a gun salesman training a young tough to use a double-action revolver in order to get revenge on the ranger. The reader gets an education, too, as several panels are dedicated to explanations of the mechanism. In the second story, Twelve Quick Shots, readers learn that the Spencer eight-shot repeating rifle is a big improvement over the old single-shot muzzle-loading Springfield. When a band of Cheyenne warriors get their mitts on a bunch of Spencers, soldiers at a nearby fort aren't too concerned until the Indians suddenly have more ammunition than they ought to. The Lone Ranger discovers that the crafty natives are reloading the cartridges, and you can find out how to do it too just by reading the story. With full-color ads for Mattel cap guns on the inside front cover and a back cover devoted to the Daisy Air Rifle, Dell Comics knew where its bread was buttered. Dell's Lone Ranger comics are rarely pulp masterpieces, but there's always something fun to discover in these hunks of comic book history. I know one fan who collected hundreds of Dell comics for the photo covers alone, and producing those covers was often a tale unto itself. For example, Dell Comics published 24 issues of the Flying A's Range Rider from 1953 to 1959, and all of them had photo covers of TV star Jock Mahoney. In an issue of Robin Snyder's newsletter, The Comics, from July 2009, longtime comic book professional Bob Cavanaugh recalled his work with the Whitman Publishing Company 
including his work on the Range Rider comic book series. Jock was the star of the Range Rider. We made the cover shots at Gene Autry's western town in Newhall. Trees, a railroad, and typical western streets. Jock had spent many years as a Hollywood stuntman and was in top physical shape. Jock came up with a stunt where he would be coming down the street, leap up in the air onto a hitching rail, and fly straight at me as I faced him with a rifle in my hands. Whitman didn't like to pay for an extra actor to be the bad guy in these photos, so I often glued on a phony mustache and played the part. Earlier, Jock had told me to hold tight when he grabbed the rifle and just relax. He grabbed the rifle, but I held tight, and he rolled us both down to the street. The photographer was behind me and was to get the shot of Jock flying through the air. Unfortunately, he missed the shot, and we didn't do it again. By the end of the 1950s, TV westerns were changing. Shows like Gunsmoke, The Rifleman, and Have Gun, Will Travel were edging out Hopalong Cassidy and Roy Rogers with serious, more adult content. The comic book Cowboys 2, after a decade of riding herd over the newsstand, were outgunned by a new passel of superheroes. The last issue of All-Star Western, the title that had shut down the Justice Society and starred a cowboy version of Johnny Thunder, saw its end with a cover date June-July 1961 and the debut of a new strip based on a revived Super Chief, a Native American superhero dubbed the Wonder Warrior of the Woodlands, a weird arbinger of things to come. Next time, we'll take a look at the wild and woolly 1960s and see how abrupt changes in American society again affected Western comic books. While old features were revamped and launched anew at Marvel and DC, some Dell comics would live on under the gold key insignia, and others would bite the dust forever. As ever, Charlton chugged along, the undergrounds were born, and an awful lot of westerns got awfully weird. Thanks for listening to this exclusive Speed Listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out the Six Gun Justice website at www.sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the western wordslingers. You can follow the Six Gun Justice podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time, be kind to one another, be kind to yourself. Keep your comic books bagged and boarded, your bookshelves free of silverfish, and as always, keep your eye on the western horizon. Adios! Adios!